Hi, welcome to the VOMA podcast. VOMA is the Western Regional Component of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. VOMA podcasts are a benefit for VOMA members to stay current on topics of interest to occupational and environmental medicine physicians. My name is Asiye Kazem Hakiri. I'm one of the occupational medicine physicians in Kaiser. And today we are thrilled to have Dr. Sandrock, who is the director of critical care, professor of medicine and vice chair for quality and safety at the UC Davis Medical Center. So he is, we are having this uh, podcast um, in, after having the webinar, uh, which was done before on January 20th, and we are answering the remaining questions uh, in this podcast. The VOMA Education Committee members involved in planning decisions have no relevant financial relationships to disclose, and Dr. Sandrock also uh, doesn't report any conflict of interest. Dr. Sandrock, if you are ready, I can start asking the questions. Perfect. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Okay, so the first question is uh, whether the monoclonal antibody is still part of the treatment for COVID. Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. And when we did the talk on January twentieth, um, just in the days preceding the talk, uh, the FDA had removed the EUA associated with monoclonal therapy, both uh, well, monoclonal antibodies, both for therapy and for prophylaxis. So the prophylaxis for high risk patients such as Uvashield, which we're familiar with, and then the monoclonal antibodies for treatment. And really, given the Omicron variant, we were predominantly using Bevstevlimumab. Um, those were both pulled off uh, as an EUA. So they've fallen out of the treatment and prophylaxis realm. Now, on the day that we did our um, webcast, it still was in the NIH guidelines. So you'll see that it was a 2B recommendation sort of below remdesivir, but really that fell out of favor and that's not being currently used right now. And that's largely around, you know, the efficacy as these SARS, um, as these coronaviruses, particularly SARS-CoV-2 changes and mutates, and there's multiple lineages of you know, the Delta or the Omicron variant, those changes are enough to reduce efficacy. So the FDA didn't really see a benefit in keeping the EUA around and subsequently they're gone, which honestly has made my job a little bit easier because one of the things I do is I'm on the COVID therapeutics team. So we have to approve all the monoclonal antibodies. So that just reduced my phone calls, which was quite nice. Perfect. So the second question is, how long does PCR remains positive for RSV? Yeah, so that's a good question. And I think we don't really have the data or the experience like we have with SARS-CoV-2. So with SARS-CoV-2, we, you know, we spent a lot of time doing repeat PCR testing. We do the same with antigen testing now, where we'll actually have repeat testing to look for, you know, any positivity. And that would let us, um, you know, lift isolation potentially. We certainly did that very early on in the disease. And then once things were more well described for the immunocompromised, you know, there was a recommendation, particularly since their symptoms linger and shedding lingers, that we can repeat PCR testing. We've not really done the same with RSV. So that, that knowledge and that education that we really picked up with the coronaviruses is not really present with RSV. Now, on average, you're really going to have positivity for about seven to 10 days. And it has some of the same issues we did see with SARS-CoV-2, 
which is that there is a threshold or what we would call a cycle time in which your likelihood of contagiousness um, changes. So for example, um, and you know, obviously the lower the cycle time, that means the virus is detected much more quickly in a PCR test versus a high cycle time. And somewhere around a cycle time of about 30 or 35, you transition away from being contagious to non-contagious. And what that essentially means is, you know, if a, your cycle time, for example, is 40, we've detected viral RNA or, you know, we've detected viral genetic material, depending on the virus we're looking at. But it doesn't really mean that you're producing enough virus to be contagious or this can be remnant genetic material. So what we learned from SARS-CoV-2 is that if your cycle time is 35 or above, even though your test is positive, you're unlikely to be contagious. You know, if your cycle time is 15 or 18, you're pretty, you know, you have a pretty good viral burden. And it's I, the same really applies for for the R, for um, RSV as well. So I think that's that's a big, um, a big thing that the part that's very difficult is, you know, how long are you going to shed and how long is this test going to be positive? And is there any point then in retesting like we did with the coronaviruses? And it's kind of funny because we don't really do that with influenza and we don't do that with RSV. Honestly, we don't do that with any other virus. We did that with, um, you know, SARS-CoV-2. But as long as you're afebrile and minimally symptomatic for 24 plus hours after having RSV, we let you come back to work and then you're functioning, right? So that's from a work and release to work standpoint. We don't really repeat that. So we don't have the data. But I would say, you know, I would be surprised if many people lingered beyond with Im immunocompetent hosts, if they lingered beyond 14 days of test positivity. I'd say many people by a week, particularly older people who've seen the virus multiple times have probably reduced um, shedding and are negative by a week. So, but a good question. We just don't have the dearth of data like we do with SARS-CoV-2. Thank you. Next, can you comment on the higher risk of a stroke in people over 65 with the Pfizer BioNTech bivalent boosters? Yeah, so this is interesting. And I, um, this is a question we're asked a lot. And the word that people have used is this increased risk. So, um, and I don't know if there really is a risk and most of us don't believe there to be a risk. So what a few studies have found and the most predominant one was in Lancet, um, so from Hong Kong, was that about 21 days, about three weeks after getting the booster vaccine, they saw a signal, and I'll use just an increased incidence of cases, a signal with hemorrhagic stroke only. Um, and they had, you know, about roughly, I think one arm had over 5 million, the other arm had over 3 million um, patients in each. So they found it in a signal at day 21 with hemorrhagic stroke. Now, whether that's causative, right? And that risk is associated with the vaccine or not, who knows? That's the part we really haven't figured out. What that same study did look is it looked at the risk of hemorrhagic stroke in those with COVID at the same time that were COVID positive and those that got the vaccine. And those that got the vaccine had a significantly lower rate of stroke anyway. So if we're looking at stroke as a whole, the highest group was that those that didn't get the booster and got COVID. The next group were those that, you know, got the booster um, and, uh, you know, didn't have COVID. And the third was a group that didn't get the booster and didn't have COVID. That was the lowest um, uh, group. Now, I don't, you know, again, that signal I don't know what it means. It really means we have to do more research because, um, you know, these mRNA vaccines are very similar and they did not find that sim single in the other mRNA vaccines like Moderna. So it was only in the Pfizer booster, not in the others. 
So, and there's really not a strong biologic plausibility on why we would see that. So it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means there needs to be a lot more research. And it also, we also know that getting COVID increases your strict, you know, your um, stroke risk the most. So it's still worthwhile vaccinating. And I think that was kind of the end result of our review of that. But we'll, I think we'll see what more data sort of shows out. That was just one database and we might not see that in any other database. And that just might be a signal of that group. Thank you. Next, any evidence that vaccination can help with long COVID? There is some data, and um, so it, it's and the data is is um, different for each uh, groups, and I'll mention it. One is, you know, obviously, if you vaccinate yourself and you reduce the likelihood of getting COVID, obviously, not getting COVID, you're not going to have long COVID. But if you are vaccinated and you happen to have a breakthrough or you get disease, your disease is more mild, but um, some studies showed no change. Other studies, and more recently, uh, a collection of studies, have essentially shown that your risk of developing prolonged symptoms from COVID, you know, they use different definitions, not the classic definition of past or long COVID, but um, they, it looks like the likelihood of getting prolonged symptoms is less if you're vaccinated. And um, now the second, so yes, it does likely reduce your risk of getting long COVID. Now we talked in the webinar that patients who had long COVID very often had mild disease. So here we are talking about being vaccinated. When you're vaccinated, you're more likely to get mild disease. But wait a second, mild patients with mild disease are the most likely to have long COVID. Um, you know, so it doesn't increase your risk, which is kind of the deduction of that argument. Um, it really still keeps your risk a slight bit lower. And that's probably the, um, the best that we could sort of say. And it, it's it's a plethora of different potential reasons. Uh, probably the one thing that's the most beneficial is what we've learned. And more recently, actually, since we had the webinar, a nice paper came out looking at the uh, central nervous system tissue on postmortem patients that had COVID. And they have, without question, they have CNS swelling. And it seems that when you're vaccinated, it reduces some of those CNS adverse events so that things such as brain fog and sleep disturbances and you know headaches and anosmia appear to be less and thus the those those symptoms of long COVID appear to be less as well. Now the flip side is say you have long COVID already and then you get the booster. Does that improve your long COVID symptoms? And the answer is we have don't have any data to say it does. Now we know it doesn't worsen them, but it doesn't appear to make um, your long COVID better. There were a number of anecdotal reports, almost all from social media that's saying, hey, I got vaccinated and made everything better. Um, but we don't really have any data to support that. So we just know it doesn't make it worse. It reduces your likelihood of getting infected with a newer strain. So we still recommend it in patients with long COVID. Thank you so much. So the next question is, how do you deal with the people that they remain positive with PCR test for more than 10 days and they are still positive and they are worried if they visit their mom or any uh, relative in the ICU, uh, they are worried whether they are still contagious and they can transfer the COVID to the other people. Yeah, so that's always a great question because if you look at the isolation um, guidelines associated with SARS-CoV-2, the recommendation is, hey, you can isolate for 10 days and at, at 10 days, if you're feeling better, and you know, your symptoms have largely resolved, you can sort of you know, get paroled, set yourself free and yes. see people. Um, but obviously then what happens if you have lingering symptoms or what happens if at day 12, you get a PCR test, right? A nasal swab and that's positive. Mm -hmm. And that gets back to our RSE question before about cycle time. 
Now, an antigen test is a little bit different because if that is positive, that suggests you have antigen and that's available versus, you know, RNA that's detected by a PCR test. So my next question would then be, all right, how are you feeling? If you're still symptomatic and you're PCR positive, you know, it's nice to know the cycle time, but if you don't necessarily know that, um, then I would say, you know, it's probably safe not to visit your family. If you're asymptomatic, but PCR test positive, um, at that point, I would ask, what, what is the cycle time? If your cycle time is 35 or 40, you're probably not contagious at all. Um, and I think it's okay visiting family. And then the safest bet of all of them is when you visit family, um, wear a mask. So if you're going to, I mean, again, much easier said than done. You know, if you visit grandma and kids and you have a mask on all the time and people are looking at you like you're crazy and you're having a meal, it's a lot harder to do than to, you know, than you'd say. But if, you know, if you're really needing to go to a family event and it's a limited amount of time, just do your best to wear a mask if you're unsure. But what I recommend my patients is, hey, we got your PCR test. I called the lab. The cycle time's 40. You don't have symptoms. I think you're good to go. Versus your cycle time's 20. You have no symptoms, but really at 20, you're probably still contagious. I wouldn't go, right? Or, um, or hey, you really have to go. Your dad is having bypass surgery. You need to see him in the, you know, in the, uh, in the recovery room. He means the world to you. Please just wear a mask, right? You know, wear mm -hmm. a mask at all times, preferably for N95, and just reduce the risk to your family. And that's kind of the, how I go about it generally with my patients. Perfect. So can you comment on CDC isolation guideline for healthcare workers and COVID positive? It looks like it was some different between the healthcare worker and the other population. Yeah, there's, there's, it's interesting. There's often um, a seven to 10 day break, you know, and there's a lot of variations uh, depending what edition you look at. And um, normally, you know, they, they have some recommendations that if you're asymptomatic, um, you know, and testing, uh, retesting, you know, if retesting is positive, but you're asymptomatic by seven days, you can come back to work. Some will mention 10 days. So there is a lot of variability. And in general, what we're following is just state guidelines, which is using just that 10 day period, uh, without retesting as long as you're asymptomatic. But that is the difficulty is that sometimes the state is slightly different than what the feds say. And that is, uh, is some, some of the variability, which we sort of see. And we just generally, here at our hospital, we've gone mostly with the state recommendations, and we kind of follow the same for both employees and non-employees in general. Okay, next, how long will the bivalent booster offers immunity? Um, so when, that's also a great question. So there's um, a two, two larger questions or two questions I'll answer with that. One is, um, you know, with the when you, once you get your shot, whether it's a booster or your primary series, there's a period of time where you're going to be protected from getting infected with the strain you are vaccinated against. So in this case, the, the bivalent booster obviously has some uh, two Omicron variants. So if you get the booster, you're looking, it's a really short time, surprisingly, but you're looking at an absolute level of protection, depending on what study you look at, of about only about four to six weeks. So that's a period of time where for about four to six weeks, you're not going to get infected with COVID. But then the second question is, uh, you know, you may get infected with COVID, but how long does that protection from death and hospitalization and adverse events last afterwards? And that is a little bit more variable. And that largely depends on the uh, variants we see and how they change. So if it's within one of the main lineages, so say, for example, um, the, uh, you know, it's still, the, you know, now we're still seeing Omicron variants out now say I got my booster back in October, we're looking at about five or six months out, I'm still having protection from severe disease and outcomes. 
um, at six plus months out. And it really depends on how far that most recent variant changes in lineage. Um, but yeah, for the, for the most part, it really um, is only about four to six weeks where it protects you against getting infected at all. And then we're looking at, um, you know, six to 12 months of protection for severe disease. Interesting. So last question is, what is the future of COVID vaccination? Any opinion on creation of trivalent vaccine? Um, you know, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so that would be interesting. And trivalent, where I mean, you think of the, the, the flu plus um, COVID or, COVID. you know, yeah. You know, they're just developed so differently that I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, mostly is, you know, the mRNA vaccine is done, you know, if you're going to look at the mRNA vaccine and compare that to the inactivated form of, um, of uh, you know, influenza, they work through very different mechanisms. And there's no real reason you probably couldn't give them together, um, except storage, you know, the cold storage and minus 70 degrees. And some of that variability certainly comes into play. And I'd have to I have to admit, I don't know. I'd probably have to look back at how a minus 70 might affect storage, might affect the influenza vaccine. I don't think it would do anything, but I would have to double check just to make sure. But um, I think right now they haven't really come forward with a single vaccine that would cover the current circulating SARS-CoV-2 variants and the um, you know multiple influenza variants. Now, I think what we may see down the road is as we now, and as I mentioned in my uh, webcast, both Pfizer and Moderna have a RSV, multiple RSV studies predominantly in high-risk individuals for vaccination, but also in mothers um, and vaccinating them. And it looks like that has some prevention in severe RSV disease in the elderly and in newborns. So, and that is an mRNA vaccine that is done in a very similar manner. So could there be a potential where they have a seasonal mRNA and COVID together? That's probably more likely than a flu initially, um, but we're still a ways away with getting those viruses, uh, those uh, RSV viruses, uh, vaccines up and running and approved. But it's just, it's an interesting thought. And then obviously they're looking at mRNA vaccines for uh, influenza as well. And I think that would be interesting to see if all three of them work together, could you potentially have all three antigens presented in a single vaccine? And that, it's a, probably a few years away. The last thing I'll remember is if you notice the FDA has made a recommendation of um, changing the uh, coronavirus or the COVID vaccines to a yearly vaccine, very similar to what we see with influenza. So I think we're going to see that as well. And I suspect it's probably for our workers going to fall in line with what we do with the flu vaccine, which makes me very excited. I'm saying that sarcastically, of course, to have to enforce and talk to all of uh, my colleagues at work to make sure they have the vaccine. It's just it gets exhausting. You know, every time you step onto a unit just to take care of patients, they're like, tell me about this vaccine. I don't want it. You know, it's going to make my uh, you know hair fall out or whatever story I hear now. Um, after a while, I just get sick of talking about it and um, but, you know, we'll see where it ends up going, but that's, I'll save that for my therapist. So, uh, but anyway, that's, uh, that's probably the big thing is at least for now, we're going to see a seasonal SARS-CoV-2 and, uh, coronavirus vaccine. And I think in a few years, potentially we could see a mixed one that will cover all three. Okay. I have no more question, uh, left Dr. Sandok. Do you have any specific, um, explanation at the end or, uh, more uh, about the COVID or RSV to mention to us? No, I think that's about it. Thank you for, um, you know, having me give the presentation and a chance to answer questions. And I was happy to chat and talk about it later, which is, which is really great. Thank you so much. Uh, actually, on behalf of WOMA, I would like to sincerely thank 
our speaker, Dr. Sandrock, for this for his time and efforts. And we are done at this podcast questions and answers. And I have to say thank everybody for listening to this podcast and have a great week. Thanks so much, Dr. Sandrock. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.